May I speak in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. I want to speak for a few moments, if I may, about what hope there is for the future. On Remembrance Sunday, we gather not only to look back with gratitude to those who have given their lives in the past, but to pledge ourselves towards a better future. The epitaph commemorating the Battle of Kahima, which will be read shortly around the War Memorial, reminds us that it is for our tomorrow that they gave their today. It's been observed that the national mood at Remembrance Sunday has evolved over time, depending on what future it's felt that there is to look forward to. When it was established in 1919, there was an understandably sombre mood. But as the years progressed, there was an increasing confidence in what was called lasting peace, which it was generally held was not only possible for mankind to achieve, but the very purpose for which our servicemen had fought and died. Throughout the 1920s, as the number of years without another war passed, it became more and more widely believed that a future of lasting peace was now a present reality. But during the 1930s, that mood shifted considerably as it became increasingly clear that this peace would not last and the future looked bleak. Despite the fact that a degree of optimism returned in the years following the Second World War, the hope that lasting world peace was within humanity's grasp did not survive the 20th century. In a few moments, around the War Memorial, we will make our annual pledge to strive for all that that makes for peace and to work for a just future for all humanity. And it is good and it is right that we do so pledge. But surely, few of us here today are under any illusion that a peaceful and just future for all humanity is really possible, this side of heaven. Since human beings first walked the earth, when Cain, the first human born, murdered Abel, the second person born, our nature has shown mankind to be violent, and unjust. Nevertheless, who could have imagined this time last year that our hope for a peaceful and just future would have taken such a terrible blow, that there would be another war so close to home, that millions of citizens of a European democracy would be forced to flee their countries and that the spare bedrooms of Melksham would be offered up 
to Ukrainian refugees. So perhaps we gather today asking, is there any hope? Collins Dictionary apparently have decided that their word for this year should be permacrisis, because hope is in short supply. We struggle to trust our leaders, whose bold promises for a better future are taking less and less time to be proved hollow. But there is one leader whose promises about the future have stood the test of time. The words that we've just read in verse 10 are an eerily prophetic description of our own day. Nation rising against nation, kingdom against kingdom, verse 11, earthquakes, famines, pestilences, and fearful events, which ought to give us some confidence that at least someone understands what is going on in our world. When Jesus predicted plague, famine, and war, his disciples listening could scarcely have imagined the scale of a global pandemic or international grain shortages affecting the poorest the worst, not to mention the devastation wrought by modern warfare and the threat of nuclear annihilation. Not that they knew it, but the disciples faced a bleak earthly future of their own. Jesus' words in Luke chapter 21 were spoken to a people on the brink of invasion. The confidence of uh, the stability of their civil and religious life felt as secure as the beautiful stonework of Jerusalem's newly refurbished temple that they were admiring at the start of the reading in verse 5. But within a generation, tensions in and around Jerusalem escalated into the devastating Jewish-Roman war And in the summer of AD 70, Jerusalem was besieged, uh, the city burnt, and the population slaughtered or deported. And as Jesus prophesied in verse 6, their beautiful new temple was sacked, and not one stone was left upon another. The historian Josephus' horrific description of what took place at the temple isn't suitable to be read this morning. He describes a scene every bit as brutal and gruesome as Passchendaele or Verdun. And yet, despite the unvarnished realism of his forecast, Jesus Christ still offered his disciples a positive and compelling vision of hope For the future, stand firm, he concludes, and you will win life. Here and now? Well, history has shown that wherever Jesus' followers have gone, obeying his supreme command to love God with heart, soul, mind and strength and love neighbour as self, peace 
and justice have invariably followed. Where authentic Christian faith has taken root, charity, democracy, prosperity and peace have flowered. And yet Jesus' promise of hope for the future in this life is clearly secondary here to his chief promise of hope for eternity. Because in verse 16, he cautions that some disciples will lose their lives. And in verse 17, that the rest will lose their popularity. But in the next breath, he promises that these same, despite dying, will somehow have their whole body, including every hair of their head, preserved. And in verse 19, that by standing firm in faith upon him, they will win life. Literally, they will gain their souls as well as their bodies. In the end, what Jesus predicted for his disciples in verse 12 happened to him. Jesus was seized and persecuted. He was handed over, put in prison and brought to trial. He was betrayed, verse 16, and was ultimately put to death. But nevertheless, not a hair of his head was to perish, and neither will ours, if we will trust him who for our tomorrow, indeed for our eternity, gave his today. So Jesus Christ offers hope, hope for an eternity of peace and justice when wars shall cease and death will be no more. So let us make our pledge. Let us strive for a better future. But as we do so, let our hope be in God, our hope in ages past, our hope for years to come, a shelter from the stormy blast and our eternal home. Amen.